Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. When a group of immigrants started a community farm in a Yankee farming town, their presence was complicated by race and rural American identity. We went there. All we said to her is we are new and we just want to say hello to you. And if we ever need any help, we can come to you. But that was not well received. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll have the story of Bami Farm. And the pandemic has accelerated the debate over driver's licenses for undocumented immigrants in Massachusetts. It's impossible to have the same life that I have right now without the car. Plus, Maria Inojosa on what's at stake if public radio fails to become more diverse. If public media writ large does not deeply understand this and begin to authentically and organically express this in terms of our hires and what we put on the air, there will be no public media in the future because we are sustained by our audiences. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. Since the election, we've been hearing a lot about a shift in voter trends. President Donald Trump lost overwhelmingly in Massachusetts, but he gained some support in cities with high concentrations of Latinos. WBUR teamed up with the Spanish-language newspaper El Planeta to explore the shifting politics among the state's diverse Latino communities. WBUR Simon Rios has the story. What do we want? For the last several months, Julio Perez has been driving a bus with a message written on the side saying stop the separation of families. He started in California, part of a caravan of immigration activists that toured the country to help turn out Latino voters. In a video, Perez and his caravan mates celebrated the end of the Trump era when the election was called for Joe Biden. Later, he spoke to us by phone as they made their way through New Jersey. It was a huge relief, like a heavy load lifted from our shoulders, he says, because the current administration has humiliated all immigrants and trampled our dignity as human beings. Perez is originally from El Salvador. He's been living in Boston since 1994. He's one of nearly 850,000 Latinos in Massachusetts. More than half of them are eligible to vote. Perez couldn't vote because he's not a citizen, but that didn't stop him from trying to turn out Latinos who are citizens to help get Trump out of office. But while most Latinos vote Democratic, this election showed a shift towards Trump in gateway cities like Lawrence, Holyoke, and Springfield. These are all places with high concentrations of Latinos, And that surprised Rich Parr, research director at Mass Inc. Polling Group. My own personal thinking was that if you were Puerto Rican, that you might actually be less inclined towards President Trump, given what had happened with Hurricane Maria. But it seems as if that wasn't so much the case here. You know, Holyoke being the example that's closest to me out here in western Massachusetts. Trump's share of the vote grew by nine points in Holyoke compared to 2016. Biden still won the gateway cities by wide margins, But Trump found new pockets of support there. 
Parr says this shift is likely due to the Latino vote. In Lawrence, where 80% of residents are Latino, Trump's share of the vote increased by 21 points. Lawrence resident Mariano Torres, a native of Puerto Rico and a veteran of the Vietnam War, explains why he and his fellow Latino Trump supporters have a special name for the president. Because Papa Trump gets more benefits than Obama. Torres says he supports Trump's idea to build a wall on the border with Mexico. He also says Democrats present a form of socialism, while the Republicans promote patriotism. Creo que el Partido Republicano fomenta la, el patriotismo. On the other side of the Merrimack River, Lawrence City Councilor Giovanni Rodriguez is a staunch Democrat. He's trying to understand why Donald Trump got more votes in this election than he did in 2016 in every precinct of Lawrence. El per capita en la ciudad de Lawrence es el menor en el estado. Rodriguez says Lawrence has the lowest per capita income in Massachusetts, and he believes many people were influenced by the coronavirus stimulus package, which was passed by Congress and featured checks signed by Donald Trump. Rodriguez also cites social media, where he believes many Latinos were influenced by a wave of anti-communist propaganda targeting Democrats. That propaganda had particular resonance among Cubans and Venezuelans, exiles from socialist countries largely based in Florida. But the memes depicting Biden as a lapdog of China and an apologist for rioting weren't contained to the South. And for evangelical Latino voters, there's also a religion factor that draws them to Trump. Yes, I am pro-life, so I base myself off in my voting biblically. Um, so and not off what the media tells me. 21-year-old Yari Morales is a second-generation Latina who just voted for the first time, and she chose Trump. Morales lives in Somerville and works at the evangelical church Vida Real, where almost all of the 1,000 members are from Latin America. Abortion is the biggest issue that drove Morales to Trump. She also sees Democrats as endorsing a kind of identity politics she doesn't agree with. She especially takes issue with the way it's being handled in schools. They're actually getting taught about all these different genders of what are you, uh, what's your pronoun. Like these kids are too young to be learning these things. Instead, they should be learning how to even get a job. Like other Trump supporters interviewed for this story, Morales says she's prepared to accept Joe Biden as the next president, but only when Trump's challenges against the validity of the election have been resolved. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Simon Rios. Frontline workers have been labeled as heroes during the COVID-19 surge. They've cared for the elderly and kept food supplies moving from farms to supermarkets. But thousands of these workers in New England are also undocumented immigrants. In Massachusetts, they face a choice between getting on a crowded bus during a pandemic or driving without a license to keep their jobs. Chris Burrell from the GBH News Center for Investigative Reporting looks at the increasingly urgent debate to solve the issue. On a recent Monday morning, Erica, who asked that GBH use her first name only, heads out of her brick apartment building to the sidewalk. She's a single mother of a teenage daughter and needs a car to get to work. It's impossible, impossible, definitely impossible to have the same life that I have right now without the car. 
Without the driver license or not, I'm driving. From her home in Malden, she drives hundreds of miles a week to clean houses, to make meals for schools, to volunteer at a food pantry, and to take her daughter to school and doctor's appointments, always feeling scared and wishing. You don't see me or see us like a criminal. You would not. We have a family, we have a dreams. One of an estimated 185,000 undocumented immigrants in the state. The risk Erica faces is real. If she decides to drive, she can be pulled over by police, arrested, and maybe even deported. If she doesn't drive, she loses work or faces possible exposure to COVID on a crowded bus or train or by carpooling with others. This intersection of immigrant workers with the pandemic is fueling a renewed fight to change the state law. Hundreds of demonstrators marched to the state house in September, demanding lawmakers pass a bill that would allow unauthorized immigrants to drive legally, just like 15 other states and D.C. have done, including neighbors Connecticut, New York, and Vermont. Democratic State Senator Brendan Creighton of Lynn co-wrote the bill. So during a pandemic, many of these folks that have been hailed and praised as our essential workers, whether they're in the grocery store setting or working for food manufacturing or helping take care of our our loved ones in long-term care facilities. These are the folks on the front lines. How do we reward them? We tell them that they have to break the law in order to drive through. Creighton's bill resonates on Nantucket, where a spike of 15 COVID cases this fall was linked to immigrant workers sharing cars. Roberto Santa Maria is the island's health director. They were picking up co-workers from multiple sites. They were spreading COVID between the four of them in the single vehicle. And then those four would take it home to their spouses and family. Santa Maria says Nantucket's economy would grind to a halt without its immigrant workforce. And he sees driver's licenses as a tool for fighting spread of the virus. To prevent the spread with something as simple as uh, a license. You know, not many people would think that this uh, two-inch by three-inch piece of plastic would be considered a public health intervention but it is. The legislature's Health Equity Task Force thinks so too, pointing to COVID's disproportionate health and economic impact on black and Latino residents. On the task force, State Senator Sonia Chang-Diaz says allowing undocumented immigrants to get driver's licenses will mitigate infection and boost job opportunities in immigrant communities. The granting of those driver's licenses is a big lever to enable individuals and families to earn financial capacity that we're trying to get to them via state spending. Despite the task force recommendations, the governor hasn't budged from his stance a year ago. My problem with um, giving license to people who are undocumented is just that. There's no documentation to back up the fact uh, that they are who they say they are. States like Connecticut have found no cases of fraud connected to their driver's licenses for unauthorized immigrants. Other critics say immigrants without legal status don't deserve privileges like driving. But dozens of urban police chiefs in Massachusetts back the proposal here, citing the public safety benefit of drivers who have to pass a test to get a license. Meanwhile, police keep on catching people driving without licenses, a crime under state law. Police statewide issued more than 20,000 violations for unlicensed driving last year, according to data obtained by GBH News. It's the second most common criminal offense in Massachusetts courts, a recent study by Harvard Law School found. State courts don't track how many of the people charged with unlicensed driving are immigrants without lawful presence. 
But five years after Connecticut allowed undocumented immigrants to drive legally, courts there saw unlicensed driving cases fall by more than a third. GBH News found. In several district courts, unlicensed driving cases take up a fifth of the annual caseload, GBH News found. Lynn is one of them. A couple weeks before the pandemic hit last spring, when yet another defendant stood to face this charge, Judge Ina Howard Hogan sounded irritated with a prosecutor. Commonwealth, yes, every case that you have that comes before the district court on an unlicensed operation and a person that has no record, you dismiss on court costs. That depends on the victim's input, Your Honor. The, the victim's input? This is unlicensed operation. Who's the victim? Such cases needlessly clog up local courts, says Chris Adams at the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. Our criminal court systems are just bursting at the seam, and you could really bring back the integrity to our misdemeanor courts if you just decriminalized a lot of these laws, like driving without a license. Contact with police and courts brings a lot of stress and costs hundreds of dollars in fines for people who can afford them the least. These worries are only compounded by the pandemic. Maria and her husband Jose are Salvadoran immigrants in Springfield. He's a builder, and she was a farm worker before taking a job with a workers' rights nonprofit. Scared of riding buses, they drive a car. But they've been pulled over several times by police, one of whom ordered them and their little boy out of the car alongside the highway. When we drive, we're scared that we could get stopped, we could get our car taken away, we could get arrested. But we have to bring our children to school, we have to bring them to their appointments, we, have, we need to drive. Maria and Jose are among the 70,000 immigrants expected to apply for a driver's license if Crichton's bill goes through. First, lawmakers on Beacon Hill need to rally their supermajority of Democrats for enough votes to override a threatened veto from the governor. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Chris Burrell. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we go to a community farm in Rhode Island, where a group of farmers who immigrated from African nations are challenging the culture of an old New England farming town, an experience that's complicated by rural identity and race. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. A few miles to the west of Providence, Rhode Island, the bustle of the capital begins to fade. Sidewalks and storefronts give way to rolling hills, historical homes, and farms. The town of Johnston is the beginning of Rhode Island's rural western corner. Since it was colonized by the English in the 1600s, Johnston has been a Yankee farming community. But that history makes it hard for newcomers like Julius Kolawole to feel welcome farming the same soil. Ana Gonzalez, host of the podcast Mosaic from the Public's Radio, takes us to Julius's community farm in Johnston. Interrupt you working, but can you just can you just tell me what you're doing while you do it? I'm planting cilantro, kale green, cucumber, hot pepper, sweet potato leaf. This is Garmaine, 
and she runs the lower fields of Bami Farm, a community farm off of Hartford Avenue in Johnston, Rhode Island. The word Bami in Swahili and Zulu means mine. Garmain is holding a pickaxe and standing in the middle of rows and rows of soil she just tilled by hand. It's Memorial Day weekend, the first big push of the season here in Rhode Island. This year, Garmain hopes to produce even more vegetables to sell at the market than she did last season, so she doesn't have much time to talk. Where did you first learn how to garden, how to farm? I work on the farm with my mommy. Garmain learned how to farm in Liberia as a child, and she's carried that knowledge with her to the U.S., where she's been living since 2006 as a refugee with her children and grandchildren. Yeah, I'll have a lot of family. Let me just say, if everyone and all go together, we are about two. Yeah. On Bami Farm, Garmain is the leader of the lower fields. That means that all the other growers who farm those fields come to her for instructions about what to do and where things are. And she has no problem telling them what's what. That's part of the reason that Julius Kolawole, the director of Bami Farm, chose her to be the leader of this section. He needs the help. Aside from Julius and Garmain, there are 13 people who have plots on Bami's communal land. And they're from all over Africa. The majority of them, like Garmain, are Liberian refugees. They farm closer to Hartford Avenue. But if you go up the hill and walk a few acres back, you find a whole other set of fields worked by refugees from the Congo, Burundi, and Rwanda. All of them come from different cultures and speak different languages than Julius, who came here from Nigeria in the 1970s to go to school. I've lived in this country for many years. I have a bachelor's degree from School of Engineering, New York, CCNY. Julius likes to say he has his ABCs, a BA, an MBA, a master's degree in engineering. He returned to Nigeria after school to do research and teach for a while, but then came back to the U.S. for good in the 1990s and made his way from New York to Providence. When he buys his home here, he starts planting fruits and vegetables in his backyard, experimenting with African plants and seeing which ones will work in the short warmth of a New England summer. It's a way to connect to his childhood. The first 16 years of my life was with my dad in the farm. And Julius knows that many other African immigrants and refugees who come to Rhode Island also have a deep farming knowledge. But it can be difficult to transfer those skills to an American workforce and culture. So in 2009, Julius starts a nonprofit called the African Alliance. Its goal is to connect newly arrived African immigrants and refugees with support and a network of African people here in Rhode Island. Many of these people cannot write their names. But uh, in terms of immigrants, we all experience something similar. Being new, not sure where you are going, not sure what's going to happen, not sure who to call. Uh, All of those things is common to all of us. Adapting to living in a new country is difficult for all immigrants, but it's even harder for intergenerational refugee families. Julius notices that the younger generations of African families have an easier time with the transition. The kids would go to school, the parents would work, but their parents, the grandparents, would get depressed. Isolated, displaced from their homes, this older generation of mostly women, grandmothers, would feel useless. So instead of training them in office jobs, Julius has a better idea. When we began uh, 
2010, the mission was for these women to get out of the house, have a place to go, because we are a village people. You know, I come to your door, you come to my door, and so on and so forth. In America, you have an apartment, you have a key. You can't go to the next door, no. So what we did was uh, take them to a garden so they can uh, grow things to feed their family. And then they can go there in an evening out of the apartment. We have pictures of things like that, where they are sitting in their farm, just while in the wait time. It's like a therapy for them. The African Alliance starts by transforming vacant lots into community gardens around where a lot of refugee families live. Julius expands the program to housing projects, where some Latino families start farming as well. At first, the farmers are just producing enough food to feed their families throughout the year. But the farms thrive, and there's more than enough. In 2013, Julius starts setting up African Alliance booths at farmers markets around Providence. Now, the women are earning money and connecting to the greater Rhode Island community. They're selling typical American vegetables like potatoes, broccoli, and tomatoes, but they're also selling things they grew up growing. Things like okra, uziza, uwedu, and different types of bananas. So exercise is good. Eating fresh vegetables is also good. On top of that, you are eating vegetables that you are familiar with. That's even excellent. Here in the garden, uh, is good for me. Is walk in the moment in the walk here. Up the hill on Bami Farm, away from Garmain and the Liberian fields, there's another clearing that's just getting started for the season. Marie Mukubahizi is in the corner of the plot, digging holes for her seedlings. It's her second year on the land here. Is the plant uh, eggplant, hot pepper? Garlic. This is garlic. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Marie was one of the first women to participate in the African Alliance's community gardens program nearly 10 years ago. She grew up in rural Rwanda before civil war tore her country apart. So she knows her way around a farm. When Marie switches to Keen Rwanda, her native language, her son Christopher steps in to translate. I asked him if he's noticed a change in his mother since she started farming here. Oh, you know what? She has lost weight. <laughs> <laughs> and then she loves it. She likes, you know, going to the, how do you call those markets? Farmers market. Yeah, farmers market. She loves those. You know, that gives her motivation to farm more. After six years of making profit from community plots in Providence, Julius has dreams of expanding. But buying farmland in Rhode Island is out of the question. Rhode Island land prices are among the highest in the country. One acre of farmland can go for anywhere between $100,000 and $300,000. That's per acre. So in 2018, Julius applies to a program through the Northern Rhode Island Conservation District that would lease him land at reduced rates just $160 per acre per year. In the spring of 2019, just in time to start working the land for the season, Julius and his group of growers are able to rent a six and a half acre parcel of land 
that they name Bami Farm. This is the first time in the history of this state, to the best of my knowledge, that we grow African vegetables, sell African vegetables, make products from growth of African vegetables. To me, that's historic. But the joy of finally accessing land is quickly outshadowed by the realities of becoming stewards of farmland in New England. We have problem with water last year. We are already experiencing problem with water this year. Watch Gami. Watch. Julius and I are off to the side of the lower fields, next to a large hose that runs down the hill. The hose is flat and empty. Garmain has just carried a large bucket of water on her head across the field from a spigot that's connected to the DEM building an acre away. She's going to scoop water with a little container in her hand, okay, and then put it on the vegetable. My hope is by next week, this thing will be running, regardless of what it's going to cost me. He's talking about the empty hose, which he wants to connect to the pond up the hill, and set up an irrigation system so all of the crops can be watered automatically and not by the farmers physically carrying and scooping water. Because I want to plant vegetables too. And I can't because my vegetables also need water. But I don't want to compete with them. I want the focus to be on them. When they are happy, then I get some space of my own. If they are not, it doesn't matter what I do. <laughs> it doesn't matter. So water's been an issue. But they're also worried about safety. Bami Farm is in the middle of a hiking trail in Snake Den Park. The signs for the farm are small and hidden by shrubs. It's easy for locals to ignore them and walk through the farm with their off-leash dogs. And then the African farmers at Bami are not comfortable around dogs. They view them more as street animals who could hurt them rather than pets. So when the dogs run up to the women and their owners try to communicate in English, the whole situation overwhelms the women. Sometimes, trucks and motorbikes even drive across the fields and ruin some of the crops and scare the women while they're working. Some people are nice, some are not. But how do we differentiate between one and the other? The women now wear a whistle around their neck. That's not helpful because you don't know what is going to happen. My worry is uh, once the news gets into the community, they're going to start coming. That would be a tragedy. That would be really, really a tragedy. And it's not just about water and signage. There's a bigger issue at play. Race. Julius gets his first hint of it when he goes to the manager of the Conservation District's program, who no longer works there, to talk about the issue with the lack of infrastructure at Bami Farm. When we took over this place, there was a young lady who is the administrator of the park. The first thing... After, I think, the first or second of our meeting, the lady at the meeting said, we are on probation. I was really irate, really, really irate, because she doesn't think we know anything. After this, Julius decides to find other ways to get help. He reaches out to the local Johnston farming community, because Johnston is, after all, an old farming town. There are about 13 farms in Johnston outside of the Conservation District's program, Almost all of them have been there for generations, working huge plots of land. Some of them trace their ancestry back to immigrant farmers who worked the land to provide for their families, much like Bami. Julius figures one of them will help Bami Farm get its footing. But that doesn't happen. 
that's our one of our irrigation ponds. Um, so what we're going to do is walk around this way, if that's okay. Darlene Dame is taking me on a walking tour of part of her family's 40-acre farm and orchard. It's been in the Dame family since 1890, and it's pristine. Rolling hills, hundreds of fruit trees in perfect alignment, a horse paddock. Darlene's grandson is wearing a cowboy hat and riding his bike up and down the rocky path in between the pond and the fields. So this pond was dug... Oh, back in the late 70s, I want to say, for irrigation. Um, that was the sole purpose. We have very dry soil. This land takes a lot of work to produce from it. People come and they say, oh, it's so beautiful. You've got such great soil. We have great soil because we work to make it great soil. The Dame Family Farm and Orchard is just one street over from Bami Farm. So Julius goes there one day in the spring of 2019 to introduce himself and maybe get Darlene's help setting up an irrigation system like hers. We went there. All we said to her is we are new here. And we just want to say hello to you. And if we ever need any help, we can come to you. Oh, we don't take anything from the government. No, 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 we've been here since 1875. Uh... No small talk, no niceties. Darlene's only response is rejection. Julius isn't confused, though. He sees through Darlene's dismissal of him to what she's really saying. He's with some of the women from Bami and a friend of his who lives in Johnston and is a black American. The gentleman with me, African-American, a retired lieutenant colonel, was fuming. We got here before 1875. Where is our own? You are telling me 1875. You are telling me you don't take anything from government, which means we may be on welfare. Not taking from government, that's the interpretation. Okay? So, I mean, we deal with this. This is life. But you just say, okay, thank you. And you move on. Back on Dame Farm, I asked Darlene about this encounter. I asked her if she would ever think about helping Julius fix some of his infrastructure problems or maybe even rent him some equipment. She won't do it. I don't begrudge someone coming from another country wanting something better. And I don't have the answers necessarily. But you have all this land now that the country owns. If you want to give them a start, and if you say you're doing something so wonderful and you've got all the land-grant colleges... Let them have a two-year or three-year stint on one of those. When you say them, who are you talking about? I'm talking about the immigrants that you're talking about coming in. Let them do it on a rotational basis. So that way you can learn the methods, you can learn the language, you can learn the different intricacies of it. Because some people decide they don't want it. They find out how hard it is, they don't want it. If you're doing the hard work that it takes to raise your family, to make your children, grandchildren responsible individuals that aren't leeching off of the public domain all the time and aren't expecting to stand there with a handout, buy me my shoes and they better be Nike Airs or whatever. I feel that that is my job to make sure they know you're part of giving to this society, not taking. (laughs) 
to write this exchange off as racist and xenophobic, because it is, especially in a town that's just under 90% white and less than 2% black. But there's something else behind Darlene's resistance to the newcomers at Bami. Because what the Bami farmers don't know is that Johnston, and the Dame family farm in particular, is at the center of a bitter land dispute that started over 50 years ago. In 1964, the state of Rhode Island passes the Green Acres Act. This program promises to conserve forest and farmland for future generations of Rhode Islanders. Mr. White, what do you think the Green Acres program will do for the state of Rhode Island? I think it will have an awful lot to do with what kind of a place Rhode Island is to live in and to work in for the next generation or so. In a way, you've got really an almost an economic development program. Sounds good. But to the farmers, it's a land grab. Green Acres takes 5,000 acres of land from Rhode Island landowners with the promise to build things like conservatories and parks. What it really does is place an economic value on conservation land that overrides the protection and the land rights of Rhode Island citizens. In Johnston, they have plans to build a park that's going to outshine nearby Roger Williams Park and bring in tourists from Hartford and Boston. There's going to be lakes and a zoo and shuttle buses, but the park is never built. The elaborate plans are scrapped. And the dames still wind up losing more than half of their land to the state. So when the voting block went in and cast their vote for that, that land got condemned. Other farming families lost their land too. But for some reason, they're able to purchase it back. Not the dames. It's a strange, confusing deal that even people at the DEM today describe as complicated and challenging. Darlene and her husband fight for decades with lawyers to get those acres back. But in 2012, they give up the fight. You know, I loved haying. And the last year that we hayed, where Julius, because Julius farms the lower field, way in the back, um, we all cried the entire time we were haying that, that June. It was the hardest thing we'd ever done. We knew we were leaving it. So that's why some of, some of the approaches that the politicians take and the people who are in charge, they don't get. They just don't get. And when we took the swing set from the front yard, the yard between the barn, that was tough. Because it was like all the generations, they knew this was it. In 2013, just one year after the dames give up their land, the DEM and the Conservation District start leasing parcels of the dames' old land to new farmers at reduced rates. They're even using the dames' old family house and barn. One of those parcels is Bami Farm. It's June now, a beautiful Saturday morning. The fields on Bami Farm have come alive. Garmain's plot is producing cilantro and collard greens, and cucumbers are beginning to pop off their vines. Marie's garlic is lush and green. Down the hill, close to the main road, Julius is planting seedlings with Arthur, a board member of the African Alliance, and Arthur's 10-year-old son, Adonis. Arthur grew up in South Providence, 
But now he lives in Johnston, and he comes to the farm with Adonis whenever he can. I love the serenity part of it, for me personally. I go to the farm to get away. And then seeing the produce after it's harvest, uh, that's a great feeling as well. Arthur's parents grew up in northeastern cities after the Great Migration. His grandfather was born enslaved. Coming to this farm and connecting with the African Alliance helps him feel connected to an ancestry that was taken from him before he was even born. I personally think that's what we need to do to make ourselves rich. We already did to make America rich, right? America has gotten rich off of Africans, Africans in America. And if we want to be uh, wealthy, we need to go back to the land and make ourselves wealthy. Okay. You see? Julius is teaching Arthur's son Adonis how to care for new seedlings. I want you to go inside the Okay, you got it? This is Julius's personal plot on Bami Farm. He just started planting it now because, as you can hear, they finally got the hose working. It's not a perfect system. Julius says there's a lot of wasted water and they're running on gasoline instead of solar panels, but it's temporary until more funding comes in. And Julius doesn't get bogged down in those imperfections anyway. See this little boy? That's my focus. And i tell you why. People who look like me don't have that urge, don't have that engineering demand, don't have those skills and so on. So I keep saying to, if you pick them up early, maybe he may be interested in environmental issues, maybe zoology, maybe botany. Why is he, why is the leaf green? Why, what is called photosynthesis? What, what is butterfly? What's the value of why bees? Okay, you gotta catch them early. And I'm inviting them here because where we all live is three levels, three tenements. You don't have this space. You don't see trees. You see butterfly in your neighborhood, you are wondering, something gone wrong? <laughs> Hopefully, I've seen signs that this is going to work. That was Bami Farm from the podcast Mosaic. It's a production of The Public's Radio in Rhode Island. Ana Gonzalez is the host and producer. To find all the episodes of Mosaic, along with photos, videos, and resources, go to mosaicpodcast.org. You can also subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, we talk to Maria Inahosa, host of the public radio show Latino USA, about her new memoir, Once I Was You. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. About five years ago at a conference, I saw journalist Maria Inahosa play ping pong with the moderator's questions. And I thought, wow, this woman is a badass. In 2016, this clip went viral of Inojosa correcting Trump surrogate Steve Cortez on MSNBC. Illegals is not a noun. It is not a noun. You cannot well, an illegal be, immigrant. I'll use it then as an adjective. An it, illegal it immigrant. Actually, if you're person, here no, 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 when no, no, you're not you allowed to be here, is that you can say it is an immigrant living 
illegally or an immigrant living without papers or without documents in this country. But what you cannot do is to label a person illegal. And the reason why I say this is not because I learned it from some radical Latino or Latina studies professor when I was a college <laughs> student. I learned it from Elie Wiesel, who survived the Holocaust, who said, you know what? The first thing they did was that they declared the Jews to be an illegal people. Inahosa is an award-winning journalist who's reported for NPR, CNN, and PBS. She's currently the host of the public radio show Latino USA, which airs on some of your stations. She's the founder of Futuro Media and co-host of its political podcast, In the Thick. She's also an author. Her newest book, Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America, came out this fall. Maria Inahosa joins us now. Thank you so much for coming on next. Oh, it's my pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you. A lot of this book is about your experiences as a journalist. It's about U.S. immigration policy. It's also about your own journey as both a Latina born in Mexico City and as an American citizen. And you open the book with a story about meeting a young girl at the airport who had come from an immigration detention facility. And you end that story by saying, I see you because once I was you. You tell the story of being a baby at an airport with your mother. You were coming over to the United States with green cards. And I'm wondering if you could share that story with our listeners. We were meeting my father, who was a medical doctor based at the University of Chicago. And the immigration agent, who was very tall, my mom is five feet tall. What ends up happening is that he ends up saying to my mother, we're going to keep her. And, you know, he said, well, she has a rash. It could be the measles. We're going to put her into quarantine. So basically, it was like, we're just going to keep her here. You can go ahead. I remember when I realized this story, I was like, well, that's really weird. Like, what was he going to do with me? I mean, what a weird immigration agent. It must have been a fluke. Well, actually, as we know now, this policy of taking children um, has really been going on for a long time in our country. They took indigenous babies and said that they wanted to baptize them. They took the babies and children of people who were enslaved and sold them away. I think I realized then what trauma looks like, what when you don't really know how to talk about something. I, I understood why I became the journalist that I am, where immigration has really been one of the central stories that I've been reporting on for the entirety of my decades in this business. I think it's because it's kind of my response to this trauma. You've covered some really pivotal moments in our country from 9-11 to Hurricane Katrina. And then in 2011, your frontline documentary, Lost in Detention, showed firsthand what conditions were like in detention facilities. One thing you write a lot about in the book is the privately owned for-profit companies that run these places. Why, in your view, are these problematic? We have an industry. It's a private prison industry. That means that you have an industry that is making profit off of keeping a body in a cell. Somewhere along the line, I wish I could be in the room when it happened. Somebody was like, oh my God, this is our new ka-ching. We have so many millions of undocumented people. We're going to make them be perceived as an illegal people, as criminals just because they exist, and we can hold them. I call it the detention, deportation, mass industrial complex. And you talk about just uh, the incentive to eke profit out of every little thing, which then impacts the conditions that people are living in. 
So one way that you make a profit, uh, you increase your profit when you're housing immigrants is that there are no legally binding standards for how much food or the kind of food that you are fed. In prisons, there is, you know, legally binding standards, the amount of time you get outside, recreation, access to education, books, you know. In the detention facilities, it's up to the discretion of the people who are running them. Okay, so what's a way in which you can increase your profit? You buy expired food. What does that look like? Well, an immigrant uh, uh, came into the nurse's office and uh, had in his her hands a napkin with breakfast from that morning. And when she opened up the napkin and showed the nurse, it was oatmeal with live maggots in it. And this is what they were being fed. They, If you are hungry, what do you do? Spoiled bologna, three sandwiches a day. That's it. One of the many important takeaways from your book is that both Democratic and Republican presidents have created harmful immigration policy from Clinton to Bush to Obama. As you look toward January and the Biden presidency, do you see reason to be hopeful that the treatment of immigrants and migrants and refugees could improve in this country? There's a saying in Mexican Spanish, hasta no ver, no creer, until you see it, you don't believe it. I'm sorry to say that Joe Biden uh, stood over the detention and deportation of over two and a half million undocumented people. Families were torn apart at that point, remain torn apart. He hasn't really quite explained, you know, watching over millions of people being denied basic due process just because they weren't born in this country, don't have access to a lawyer, don't know why you're being held, nothing just because you're an immigrant in immigrant courts now. I think the difference between what happened with the Obama administration now is that people, you know, fool me once. But I don't think this is going to be a fool me twice situation because too many lives have been ruined. The correct thing for Biden to do would be first to apologize for his role. And right now, this country does not have an immigration problem or situation. There's net zero immigration from Mexico to this country. Refugees are basically at an almost standstill. What this country does have is an international human rights crisis on its hands. And so Joe Biden should take the all of the power of every intelligence apparatus in this country to do everything to reunite every single child and family and to bring the process of having those families come into this country legally if this is where they want to be and need to be. So I want to go back to your career. You were, I believe, the first Latina to work at NPR. Um, now, decades later, NPR and its member stations continue to be criticized for our lack of diversity and really at the heart of it for not reflecting the diversity of the community and the public that we serve. You've been vocal about how angry this makes you. And after years and years of conversations and conferences where people pledge their commitment to diversity in public media, why do you think we continue to fall short? Frankly, if public media does not truly diversify top to bottom, which does not mean, by the way, oh my God, can't have anybody, you know, who's white working. No, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about representation. But the truth is, is that if public media writ large does not deeply understand this and begin to 
authentically and organically express this in terms of our hires and what we put on the air, there will be no public media in the future because we are sustained by our audiences. So there's a self-interest here, honestly. It worries me that many colleagues in public media see this call for representation as a political one, like some kind of like, you know, progressive lefty, like, you know, we want, it's not that it's actually demanding that we do the best journalism that we can do. You know, the thing about like, once I was you is that it's all of those things about an immigrant story, but it's also a journalist's book. It's a book about journalism. And many of us journalists of color, we're like journalists through and through. That's how we wake up. That's how we think. And so we want that representation because it's going to be better for our profession. And what needs to happen is, and this is where it gets hard, right? There's got to be changes from the top. And that means that people have to be willing to not necessarily share, but actually say, okay, well, I'm handing over the reins. I see you. Maria, thank you so much for your time. I also want to thank you for the book. I'm, I found it, you know, both educational and inspiring as a journalist. So I'm really grateful to you. Thank you. Oh, I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. And thank you for a beautiful conversation. Maria Hinojosa is the author of Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America, which came out this fall. She's also the host and executive producer of the public radio show Latino USA, founder of Futuro Media, co-host of its political podcast In the Thick, and a frequent guest on MSNBC. That's our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Talarski. The music you hear on Next is by musicians in New England. If you want to know who you heard today, just visit our show page at nextnewengland.org. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio. 